Uh, we're going to be in Ezekiel 17 tonight. So uh, last time we were together, we did Ezekiel 16, probably my favorite chapter in the book of Ezekiel, which really <clears throat> looks at the unfaithfulness of uh, mankind and his need of salvation and ends my favorite part of, of Ezekiel 16 is when the Lord has laid out for 62 verses the charges and and I, I have to say the word whore or harlot more in that word, in that chapter, than anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, and then he says, he speaks about the day in which he will atone for her sin. And uh, to me, just that one phrase, so much hope, so much laid out uh, for us in chapter 16. Now, as we come into Ezekiel chapter 17, we have a parable. Uh, it's a parable for... Uh, the nation of Judah, and <clears throat> particularly uh, parable of disaster. And as we look at this parable, um, the the purpose behind it, it's, it's going to be called two things. We'll see. It's called a riddle and a parable. And the idea behind it is uh, prophetically to lay out for the nation um, the final two kings. So if you remember when we went through Jeremiah, we talked about the last four kings of Judah. And the Really, the important thing to remember about the last four kings of Judah is four months, 11 years, four months, 11 years. There's your last four kings. So the kings that serve for four months are deposed, one by Egypt, uh, the other by Babylon, and then a puppet king is set up, and the puppet king that is set up, each time a puppet king is set up, he rules for 11 years before he rebels again. And then the uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes down. Ultimately, the fourth time, destroys the temple and the city. So the parable that we're going to look at in Ezekiel 17 is dealing with those, the last two. The last two kings and what God is going to accomplish uh, there through them. And there's an important, an important reason for us to look at these things. Throughout Israel's history, Israel was charged uh, to do several, I don't know, might seem strange things to you and I. Uh, there were appointed feasts. The Bible calls them appointed times or appointed days. Uh, there were seven feasts, and each one of those seven feasts was an opportunity in celebrating the feast. One of those would be Passover. In celebrating the feast, it was an opportunity for families to come together and have a time of teaching about God's deliverance or God's move in the nation or uh, prophetically future deliverance from the Lord. They would come together and celebrate these feasts and have an opportunity, fathers to teach their children around a table through the meal about uh, what the Lord had done. They also had uh, uh, several places where uh, throughout the Old Testament where we see them building altars. And altars were the same thing. Altars were points that marked times and places where God's people were called uh, to, uh, in particular to worship God over something he had done for them. So they become something like the third point, which is memorial stones. So memorial stones, the Lord, there are several times in their history where the Lord tells the children of Israel, like when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, God says, now go back into the Jordan and take out 12 stones 
and build a memorial stone, a pile of stones outside. They were taken from the middle of the river, but remember the river stopped up, and they're placed over here. What was the point of all of these things? So when your children ask you, what's that pile of stone doing out here? You could tell them, you know, we got those stones from the middle of the river when God stopped up the River Jordan and we crossed into the promised land. Over and over and over again, the Lord sets up opportunities um, and challenges fathers to make sure they're teaching their children. And grandfathers, their grandchildren, and on and on it goes, right? Because the Lord is looking for those faithful men who will take those opportunities to teach the things that need to be taught. So before we start in Ezekiel 17, I want to read Psalm 78. So if you have your Bibles and you would open up to Psalm 78, we're going to look at Psalm 78, which is going to remind us the purpose when we look at these prophecies and and we're talking about events that we've talked about before the repetition of it why why does the lord call us to these things why does he lay these things out for us each one is an opportunity for us not to let a moment pass where we haven't instructed the next generation about god's faithfulness and so psalm 78 is a reminder of these things says in Psalm 78, verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So <clears throat> the word for parable it is a word that also means proverb. <clears throat> Wrapped up in this <clears throat> excuse me, phrase in Psalm 78, is the idea of riddle, proverb, poetry, uh, pretty much any kind of way you can think of to memorialize a story for the purpose of teaching. And so he's saying here, these are the dark sayings, the parables, the stories, things we have heard and known. That What's that last phrase? That Who told us? That our fathers have told us. Because this is the method God has ordained for sustaining growth and understanding in the Word of God. The initial government that was established by God is a family, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's the next thing he say? Teach these things to your children. Teach them when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk in the way, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, teach them. Build memorial stones. Why? So you can teach them. Celebrate the feast days. Why? So you can teach them. And now here in Psalm 78, remember all those parables our dads told us. The stories. The stories that were laid out for us. The riddles that the Bible teaches. The poems that were discussed. Verse 4, we will not hide them from our children. But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. So passing the torch, right, from one generation to another, to another, to another. It's not not someone else's responsibility. 
It's not, and it won't be accomplished just by coming to, to church on Wednesday and Sunday. That won't do it. It's a life, right? It's like, it's like expecting me to get skinny because I diet uh, one day a week. How would that work? Yeah? Not well. I'm already doing that. I diet at least one day a week. <clears throat> Doesn't work at all. Neither will it if we only sit under the word for one hour. How many hours are there in a week? Well, there's more than one, right? And so there's, a, there's an abundance of opportunity in time. Here's the psalmist <clears throat> challenging us to prepare the children. Don't hide from them the stories. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them who? To their children. This is the, the method God has ordained. This is natural. This is the purpose of family. This is a purpose for a father to his children, the purpose for mothers to their families. It's all family. And the reason why <clears throat> this is important to me uh, is because I think right now in the world we're in, the family is under attack. So if you don't really understand what Black Lives Matter is about, it's not really about black lives, it's about the destruction of nuclear family. That's, that's what it is. That's, it's, it, if you go to their website, you can read it yourself. So they're the ones who put the website up. I didn't do it for them. This is their goal. This is the goal. This is why every time you turn on a TV uh, sitcom, uh, dad is stupid, and the parents don't know what they're doing, and the children should just be free to make their own decisions. And so we, we see in, in, in everything, whether it's in sitcoms or movies or books or I don't, whatever, family is under attack, and God's plan and purpose for it is also under attack and so here the psalmist deuteronomy I, it's not hard for me to find scripture that gives us the mandate right to teach our children teach them pass on the stories so that they might know <clears throat> he goes on verse 7 so that they should set their hope in god and not forget the works of god but keep his commandments. So why do we do it? So that our children continue to walk with God and there's another generation. And that's, that's one of our, our challenges. You've, you've heard me say before as we've gone through Ezekiel, I feel like um, <clears throat> what the Lord is impressing on my heart is we as, as, a, as a, a, a body of believers are, have entered into a time of exile. We are in a post-Christian nation. Uh, Christianity is under attack. Family is under attack. A lot of things are under attack. And we need to make sure the next generation is ready. And I need to do that more than I need to figure out who the next president is. I need to do that more than all the other things that that in my past as a dad have taken precedent over whatever stuff. I need to be diligent <clears throat> to make sure that my kids, my grandkids, 
people that are associated with my family that I'm doing my job as grandpa to make sure that they know the stories, that they've heard the riddles, that I didn't hide any of these things from them. Because their generation is going to be called to stand. My time is winding up. I'd love to think I have, I, I just know I have less time ahead of me than I have behind me. How's that? <clears throat> and so I, I, I need to be purposeful. Purposeful about what we're doing. So that they would set their hope on God. Not forget the works of God. Keep his commandments. That they would not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. <clears throat> we got to where we are at as a nation because we, like the children of Israel, are stubborn and rebellious. We are disobedient. We were not obedient to the things God called us to and directed us to. And so we are a part of why we're where we are. Why we are in exile if that's where we are. And so... We want the next generation not to make our mistakes. Isn't that every dad? And no father says, you know what, I want my sons to repeat all my mistakes. No, I know they're going to make their own, but I, I hope I can help them learn from mine. So they're better. To what end? Look, a generation whose heart <clears throat> was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful. So we want the opposite of those things. Steadfast heart, faithful heart, faithful to God. This is our challenge to provide for the next generation, <clears throat> for our children, our grandchildren, um, for all those who are coming up. And this is why Ezekiel is providing for us in Ezekiel 17 one of those things, the dark sayings, the parables, the poetry, the the <clears throat> the. Stories that we're supposed to look to and say, okay, what is the story of these two eagles? And what is that about? And using these things to teach our kids. So let's jump into it. Ezekiel chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, we'll start with the illustration of the parable. So, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle, speak a parable to the house of Israel. So... <clears throat> The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. We've talked about this multiple times. I want to make sure that we understand it. We have a tendency to think when we say things like the word of the Lord came to me, <clears throat> means that I had a thought or an inkling or an unction. But in Ezekiel's case, when he says the word of the Lord came to me, he means the word of the Lord came to me. And we'll read times in Ezekiel where he will say the word of the Lord came to me and he touched me. So the Bible tells us who's the word, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. There is the God who is in the bosom of the Father that declares the Father to us in, in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and the word became flesh, right? Jesus Christ, he's the word of God. He is, uh, for all intents and purposes, for me, the voice of God, when uh, throughout the Old Testament, when God is speaking, when God is moving, Jesus is going to say in John chapter 12 that uh, he's the voice from the, from the burning bush. He's going to say uh, um, that, that these are 
this is his presence here. The word of the Lord is coming to Ezekiel and he's telling him, I want you to put together an illustration, a parable, a, a riddle. I want you to deliver this message to the children of Israel so that they are challenged to understand what's going on. The word of God is provided for us as uh, uh, meditation literature. <clears throat> the word of God is not like a cookbook or a history book that just simply has the facts. The word of God is meditation literature, which means we're supposed to take the word of God and chew on it. Doesn't David tell us to do that? Meditate on the word of God. Chew on the word of God. Turn it over. Look underneath it. Delve into it. Put your hooks into it and own what the Word of God is teaching. And we do that by meditating on the Word of God. And so part of that is understanding Proverbs, understanding parables, understanding the riddles that Scripture talks about. And here we have the beginning of one laid out for us. So it's going to begin with the concept of an eagle. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle... With great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. So <clears throat> he begins the riddle. Now, one of the things that we do when we're meditating on the Word of God is, and one of the things I'm thankful for in the Word of God, is symbolism uh, holds throughout. So if we look through the Scripture and we say, are there other stories, are there other illustrations of eagles, and what were those illustrations about? It can help us understand, get some gleaning and some comprehension of what's going on. Jeremiah 48, uh, 48, 40, it says this, For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. And again, here in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking of Babylon as that eagle coming down against Moab. In Jeremiah 49, 22, he says, Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom, Basra was the capital of Edom, uh, the heart of the warriors of Edom shall in that day like the heart of a, be like a heart of a woman in her birth pangs. Again, speaking of the armies of Babylon coming down against Edom, and, uh, and the battles that would take place in Basra. And so there is precedent within the Word of God to use an eagle to be a picture of a nation who is coming in, to conquer or conquering. <clears throat> and so as we look, the, of course, the other thing I love about Scripture is that we don't always have to find all the pieces because he's going to tell us. And so that always makes it easier too, right? When the Lord tells us what's, what's going on. So he's talking about this eagle. Verse 4, he broke off the topmost of the young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. So as we look, <clears throat> Scripture, uh, the, the cedar is going to be a picture of the line of David, the family of David. And it's going to be uh, utilized to be a part of that kingly line, right? So the kingly line for the nation of Israel was to come through David. And the, the once and, and final king is going to be Messiah, right? 
when Jesus Christ rules and reigns on his throne as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when you look at this, uh, when we see the cedar, we see breaking off a twig, flying it to another place and leaving it there. Um, it's easier for us after the fact to look back and go, well, that's what happened to Jehoiakim, the third king. Remember I told you four months, 11 years, four months, 11 years. Jehoiakim, which is of the line of David, is going to be taken into Babylon. He's going to live the rest of his life in Babylon in exile. And the last king who will be set up, his name will be Zedekiah. And this story is about those two kings. It's about uh, it's given to us in Ezekiel probably two years ahead of the event so that those who, uh, who comprehend the message that God's giving will, will understand the prophecy as it takes place. And it deals with the last two kings, Jehoiakim or Jeconiah and Zedekiah. So, so we're going to see that as we, as we go through. The plundered cedar, the house of David, there's a promised deliverer coming. You'll see as we wrap the whole story up. And the highest branch, the king who is currently on the throne, broken off and taken captive. 597 B.C., after reigning for four months, Jehoiakim is taken to Babylon. Here's why, you know, when, when we talk about this kingly line of David, in Psalm 132, verse 11, <clears throat> the psalmist would write that the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. So it's the sons of David who are rightful kings. Doesn't mean there was never a king who wasn't uh, of the family. There were usurpers in their history that tried to wipe out the line of David. Ultimately, the devil's attempt to wipe out Messiah, right? Because he's the king that the line of David is pointing to. The line of David is pointing to Christ. And so you have the line of David uh, taken into Babylon. We see in verse 4, verse 5, then he took of the seed of the land. So somebody within the land. He took a seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. So he plants a new tree. Who's the new tree? The new tree is going to be Zedekiah. The king he's going to set up. He took of the seed of the land, planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig. And it sprouted and became a low spreading vine. So this is not equal to uh, those within, although this is still one of Josiah, Josiah's, this is one of Josiah's sons, it's still, he's still in the line of David, but he was not the king, uh, it certainly is not a picture of Messiah. It sprouted and became a low spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, the first eagle. So the branches are turned toward him, he is going to, to find his authority given to him by the eagle. The eagle who came and took the top branch and planted the second branch, the seed of the land, uh, Zedekiah, the youngest son of Josiah. So his branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. So he grew up. He's going to reign for 11 years. There's... There's thing, positive things he's going to do and what have you. 
But there's also negative things he's going to do. And, and I think as we go on a little further, we'll understand why that's a big deal. But in Isaiah 31, Isaiah speaking <coughs> the word of God gave this warning. He said, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong and do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So the Lord let the people know, and, and we'll see more of that as we go on through this parable, this, uh, this riddle describing two eagles and two kings and the final, the final end for uh, Jerusalem. As we look at it, <clears throat> what we're going to understand is that the Lord told them ahead of time and spoke to the kings what, what, from the beginning. He gave the kings three rules. You guys know the three rules? Don't multiply wives. All of them broke that one. Don't multiply gold. And don't multiply horses. And for each one, there was a reason. Don't multiply wives. They'll turn your heart away from me. Understand that the point was not, in those days, multiple marriages for the king had literally nothing to do with the king falling in love with somebody and wanting to marry somebody else and have another wife. What was it when they took a wife? It was a, a, the way of making peace with another nation. So Solomon had how many? Too many, right? And because he sought peace through all the nations, and the way he achieved that peace was through marriage. And the Lord specifically said, don't do that. That's, that's not what I want you to do. What do we see Solomon doing at the end of his life? He's building temples to false gods for who? For his wives. All right? So what the Lord said, he said, don't, don't heap up for yourself gold. Because what? What's our tendency? Let's ask ourselves, what is our tendency in the midst of a crisis when we look at our bank account? To What do we look at our bank account for? We think, oh, look, I might have enough to bail us out. Right? Uh, oh, I've got enough. We can get through this. Uh, and so, and the Lord said the same thing to the kings. I don't want you to look to gold for your deliverer. Gold is not your deliverer. He said, don't multiply horses because I don't want you to look at your might, the might of your army. In those days was measured by how many horses did you have? Because the horses multiplied the power of your soldier, Right? A soldier standing on the ground with a sword was not as powerful as a soldier mounted on a horse with a sword. So don't multiply horses. I don't want you to put your trust in your armies. I don't want you to put your trust in your gold. I don't want you to have your heart turned away from me through making uh, peaceful treaties, uh, through marriage with other nations. I want you to trust me. That's what God wants. So when you're in trouble, where does God want us to go? To him. So when we're, if we get the bad news at a doctor's appointment, what does God want us to do first? Does he say, don't take medicine? Does he say, don't look for a surgeon? No. What's he say, though? I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me in prayer. I want you to come to me because, because that is uh, us showing our faithfulness to him. We trust you, Lord. 
before I run to my bank account, my, my bank account's not saving anybody, but before I run to my bank account to look for a Savior, I want to lift my eyes to the Lord. I need to know where does my help come from. My help come from the bank? Nope. My help come from the armies? Nope. My help comes from the Lord. And so the Lord says, don't look to other places. Look to me. So he says in uh, verse 7, continuing the riddle, continuing the parable, and there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches. So remember, the first eagle's Babylon, and Babylon gives Zedekiah the power, and Zedekiah, we're going to see in a moment why God's so upset with Zedekiah for turning away from Babylon and turning toward another eagle. And this other eagle, we know historically where Zedekiah turned. Zedekiah turned to Egypt. So the second eagle is a picture of Egypt. The vine bent its roots toward him, shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it, looking for a deliverer from Egypt. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. So there was opportunity for Zedekiah to be noble. But Zedekiah turned to Egypt. Now we already read in Isaiah 31, right, that God says, Woe to you if you turn to Egypt and you don't turn to me. But there's more going on in the story that we'll, that we'll see in just a minute. So here are the questions the Lord asks. I love it when, when God does this because in his parables, in the Passover meal, in the celebration of the feast. There are always questions that God gives for the children to ask, and these are the questions that we want to try to answer. And this is where the concept of uh, what we call a catechism today comes from. What, it was a, what was a catechism? A catechism was a list of questions taught to children, and then the parents would, or the instructor would, teach them the answer to the question. So they would learn the question, and they would learn the answer. And through repeating the question and the answer, they would come to an understanding of the lesson, whatever that lesson was, that people were trying to get across. Here the Lord does the same thing. Verse 9, say, thus says the Lord, will it thrive? Is that new branch, is it, is it, is, is it doing right? Is it going to thrive and grow? Will he not? Now this he... These are the tri tricky things of language. This he, will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit? That he, the antecedent to that he, is the first eagle. So you have one eagle planted you, one eagle gave you the power, one eagle gave you your authority. You turned your, your roots and everything, your sustenance was received from the first eagle. Then you turned away from that eagle to another eagle representing another nation, will not he, the first eagle, pull you up by the roots? Now, those of you who are with me through Jeremiah, we know what happens at the end of the story, right? What happens to Zedekiah? Yeah, he's pulled out by the roots. What happens to the nation? It's, it's utterly destroyed. The temple is destroyed. It's all brought down. Here's the question. Will it thrive or will it be pulled up by its roots? 
so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? So the idea, see the parable. If you took a twig from a tree and you stuck it in the ground and you took care of it so that it began to go to root and it began to grow, then how hard later on is it for you to pull that out of the ground? It ain't like pulling out a tree, right? So this is the Lord's question. How hard is this to pull out? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away even on the bed where it is sprouted. So we have the parable. That's the parable told. Beginning in verse 11, now he's going to begin to talk about what does this par- what's this parable about? So in verse 11, Ezekiel again, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him in Babylon. So there are three separate trains of exile that come when Babylon takes Judah. The first group has a famous guy in it. You guys know who went in the first group? Several famous guys. You got Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know who those three guys are? If you watch Veggie Tales, you know it's Rack, Shack, and Benny. Yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the first deportation. Takes them to the palace. Second deportation is going to involve Jehoiakim. He's going to be taken. Remember the twig broke off the tree? And it's going to have another prophet in it. His name is Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is going there, and he's going to spend his whole ministry there with the refugees outside of Babylon at the Kabar Canal. Then the final group is all the survivors at the very end of the final siege when Jerusalem is destroyed. And we'll read about those guys coming to the, coming to the refugee camp in the book of Ezekiel a little bit later. That'll be the final word. So these things that Ezekiel's saying, we've talked about this. Ezekiel's not putting it on Facebook so the guys back in Jerusalem can read it. So the guys in Jerusalem are not going to hear Ezekiel's prophecies. Ezekiel's prophecies are for the refugees. So when that final group of refugees comes and they all have the stories of what happened, all of the refugees will know The Lord's with Ezekiel because he told us before all these things happen. And the confirmation is coming up with that final group in exile. All right. So those are the, the three exiles. He says, so the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took her king and her princes. Uh, Daniel was a prince of the, of, of nobility and brought them to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring. And he made a covenant with him. This is Zedekiah. He took one of the royal offspring, Josiah's youngest son, and he put him under oath. 
We're going to read about what that oath was uh, in a moment. He put him under oath. The chief men of the land he took away. He took away Jehoiakim. He established another king in the lineage of David, and he makes him swear an oath. And so Zedekiah swears an oath that the kingdom might be humble, not lift itself up, and keep his covenant that it might stand. So you need to understand God's message through Jeremiah was, so if you guys will just stop rebelling, you can live. The nation does not have to be destroyed. The temple does not have to be taken down. Those weren't prophecies that, except that came later when Jeremiah said, if you don't stop rebelling, it's all coming down. So the king has 11 years. Remember, he served 11 years. The king swears an oath that they'll be humble, that they won't rebel, won't lift itself up, and will keep the covenant that it might stand. But remember the story. There's two eagles, right? One eagle he turned toward. He made an oath. He made these promises. Verse 15, but he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt. So who's the second eagle? Egypt. By sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses. Oh, what aren't you supposed to multiply? They gave him horses and a large army. Here's the questions again. Will he thrive? There is a way that seems right to men. But the end is a way of destruction. So when we think we know, there's biblical teaching and precedent to guide us, right? Because the Word of God is sufficient. That's what we need, the Word of God. If we have the Word of God, then we can know what we need to know about how we ought to deal with life, right? We're, we're going to take it out from what God's Word has delivered to us. It is sufficient. And so we have this. We have the things that we need. But man oftentimes has a plan. What do you think it was like for Joshua the night he told everyone about the assault plan against Jericho? Do you really think all his generals were like, hey, that's exactly what we were thinking? No, right? What about uh, Abraham when, when he knows that God has called him to go offer his son as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah? If he stopped and told his neighbors what he was going to do, what would they have said? Oh, that's a great idea. No, probably not, right? Because there's a way that there is an arrogance in man that assumes man is able to solve it without God. And as we work our way through the entire Old Testament and much of the New Testament, we come face to face to face to face with that over and over again. There is a human uh, philosophy that we can save ourselves. And up against that, you have God who says, you cannot. I can save you. But you cannot save yourself. So, what does he tell us happens? And so, he rebelled against him. He, sought, he, he sent ambassadors to Egypt. He got horses and a large army. Will he thrive? 
Can, can one escape who does such things? Can he, listen to this part, can he break the covenant and escape? These are the questions we're supposed to ask ourselves when we look at this parable. Now, one of the things we should be thinking as we look at this, okay, can one escape who does such things? Why is God so upset with Zedekiah? He's just rebelling against a tyrant. Why is it is it is it never is it isn't it isn't it okay to rebel against a tyrant? Isn't it okay to rebel against the powers? What, why is God so upset? And what does he mean by can he break the covenant? What covenant is he talking about? Verse 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath, hear that, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke. In Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war. So he'll reach out to Egypt, but there's not going to be any help. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. In fact, Egypt's going to be conquered just as well. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold he gave his hand and did all these things he shall not escape the final king of judah the word of prophecy through ezekiel to the refugees that won't get confirmation of these events until the last group shows up and they're still at least a couple of years away what is the deal Therefore, verse 19, therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised. Okay, we're talking about the oath again. And God is saying his problem with Zedekiah is this oath. And the Lord says, that was my oath. You despised my oath and it was my covenant he broke. So I will return it on his head. I will spread my net over him. He shall not be, or he shall be taken in my snare. Remember, Zedekiah tries to escape, and he gets captured. All his sons are killed before his eyes, and his eyeballs are plucked out. Then he goes back to Babylon, where he dies. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the. Or let me back up. Uh, I will spread my net over him. He will be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, and and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery. He has committed, what does he say? Against me. So whatever treachery he did, God is saying, that is a treachery to me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered. The dispersion, right? There's nobody left in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be empty and a place for jackals, for dogs, for ostriches, no, no people will be there until Ezra and Nehemiah bring the remnant, the next generation, the generation that was raised up in refugee camps to go back and reestablish the nation. And the survivors will be scattered to every wind, and you will know that I am the Lord. So this is God's word. So 
I want to understand the covenant. What is the covenant he's despising? What is God referring to? 2 Chronicles chapter 36 tells us what is the oath? What is going on? 2 Chronicles 36 verses 11 to 13 says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. Remember I told you, four months, 11 years, four months, 11 years. <clears throat> he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So according to God, he's not a good king. Why? Here's God's charge. One, he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So he would not listen to Jeremiah. In fact, if you were with us when we went through Jeremiah, there were at least twice Zedekiah had private audiences with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, just tell me what God's doing. And Jeremiah's like, you have got to be kidding me. I tell you, you never listen. I told you over and over and over, stop fighting. What was the beginning of the parable? There was an eagle. He planted you. You turned toward him. Will you thrive? The indication is you could have thrived in that environment. You could have submitted and you would have sat the throne. And the temple wouldn't have been destroyed and the nation would have had admittedly a small remnant back in Jerusalem, but there would have still been people in Jerusalem. But you would not listen to Jeremiah. You would not humble yourself before Jeremiah. You would not receive the word. Look at verse 13. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the oath. Who made him swear by God. Now just pause for a moment and think about what's been going on in Nebuchadnezzar's life that they don't know about back in Jerusalem. Who'd he take in that first conquest? He took a guy named Daniel. You remember what happened with Daniel? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar's upset. He had a dream. And he's got these wise men. They're on his payroll. He pays them to be wise to tell him what to do. So he tells them, I had a dream. I'm really upset by this dream. So the wise men say, well, tell us a dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, no, if you're really wise men, you tell me what I dream." And they said, oh, nobody's ever asked us to do something like this. This is not possible. This is impossible. Why? It's impossible for man to save himself. Cannot save yourself. So Nebuchadnezzar was a hothead. Everybody knows, right? He, he'd get super mad and he'd just kill everybody. So he got super mad and he said, that's it. I'm killing all the wise men. Go get all the wise men kill them. Throw them in a the fire. So word comes to Daniel. Daniel sends a message through his, the captain over the wise men. He says, hey, tell the king to give me some time and I'll tell him his dream and the interpretation. So Daniel prays to God and God did what no man could do. He told him what the king dreamed and what it meant. So Daniel gets raised up. Right? So that Daniel, who is a believer in Yahweh, right? A servant of Yahweh, 
the voice for Yahweh, like Ezekiel is a voice for Yahweh in a refugee camp, Daniel is the voice of Yahweh in the palace where God was sending the captives. Did God really have a better plan than they could imagine? Yeah, sticking Nebuchadnezzar's... Nebuchadnezzar writes chapter 4 of Daniel. So in case you're wondering, when you get to heaven, you'll get a chance to talk to him. You will talk to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes to know the true God, the God of Daniel. Why is that important? Because when he comes to Zedekiah to raise him up, what does he tell him to do? I want you to swear an oath by Yahweh that you will do these things. And Zedekiah did it. And God expected him to keep it. So God said, that oath you swore to Nebuchadnezzar, who now calls me God Most High, that oath you also swore to me. And you broke it. So God's judgment comes upon him. Does God expect us to keep our covenants to him? Are we supposed to pay our vows? Does the Bible teach us to keep our promises to God? Yeah. That's what we call faithful, right? You ever had somebody break a promise to you? That's what we call unfaithful. And none of us go, oh, I really love that person who broke his promise to me. Right? Nobody goes, ooh, I want more friends like that who will promise me things they break. No. We want, we want promise keepers. So the Lord said, Nebuchadnezzar made you swear by God Listen, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. So now, this is how you get to see the whole picture. You get to see the whole picture through what God was doing in Daniel, through what God was doing in Jeremiah, and what God is doing in Ezekiel. Now, none of those guys all know the other pieces. Daniel knows Nebuchadnezzar has come to know who Yahweh is. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes to conquer a rebellious people, and he tells the next king that he sets up, he chooses, he could have picked anybody. He could have picked some knucklehead on the side of the road and said, you're going to be king, do what I say. But he picked somebody else in the line of David. He picked, the grand, or he picked the youngest son of Josiah, the last great king of Israel. And then he said, swear an oath to Yahweh to be obedient, and I'm going to make you king. And God says, he wouldn't turn to me. He hardened his heart. He wouldn't turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. When you see all the pieces happening, all the parts moving, you start to realize God had a plan in it all. And just because the people didn't understand the plan or didn't know the plan didn't mean that God was able, through the prophet Jeremiah, to speak to the people, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans of good and not of evil to give you what? A future and a hope. Was it true? For sure. 
even though it was slavery, yeah, it was good because the king who was taking them was having a radical transformation in his life because of a prophet named Daniel. That they, did they have the word of God in the refugee camps? Yes. How? Because of a prophet named Ezekiel. But what about all the people who got left behind? Did they have a chance? Yes. Why? Because of a prophet named Jeremiah. All of these things working in and through for God's purpose. Now listen to what the Lord says. We, we're going to wrap this part up. I really should be able to finish this in 50 minutes. Craziest thing in my life. What the world? You're such a knucklehead. Okay, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself, so now God is entering into the parable. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. Who's that? You know how many scriptures call the Messiah the branch? Not said. The the branch, a root of David, right? The shoot of Jesse, all these phrases for branch. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. The cedar being the line of David is, is uh, Jesus of the, of the line of David? Yeah. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it myself. The Lord says, I will plant it high and lofty mountain." On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches, that it will produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Now that should remind you of another story. Somewhere in the Gospels. The shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I will dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. When we look at this, it's, 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 it's going to be fulfilled beautifully. In 520 B.C., King Cyrus, whom Isaiah named a couple hundred years before he was born, it's going to come on the scene, and one of the leaders of the nation of Israel and a part of the rebuilding is going to be a guy named Zerubbabel, who is the great, great grandson of Josiah. Zerubbabel means the shoot of Babylon, and he's going to be a part of putting the nation back on the map. But the Bible is rife with scriptures that talk about who the great tree is going to be. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Just what the Lord's talking about. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide 
with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. That's the kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, deal wisely, execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh Tiskanu, the Lord our righteousness. What is it that Paul wrote? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh. Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. You know, since 70 AD, nobody has known who is in the line of David. But prior to 70 AD, a child was born. And he ministered till he was 33 years old. He was placed on a cross and crucified. On the third day, he rose again. And the Bible tells us he ascended to the Father, and the Father looked at his Son, the Son of Man, and he said, Sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. The King of Kings. Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Here. Now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who hold the sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in one day. Zechariah 6.12 And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear uh, royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. The branch, the not said, or the Messiah. God said, yeah, you guys are knuckleheads always messing it up, but I'm bringing a king who will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords when I remove your iniquity in a day. Sounds like Isaiah 53, and he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God is good. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can spend.
in the amazing book of Ezekiel, God, to see all the things that your word declares, the challenges that you give us, Lord. I, I am uh, just amazed of all the pieces that come together because your word is meditative literature. It requires my time. Requires me to see things from each point of view, to see all the pieces, to get a bird's eye view of the story. Lord, you give us these stories so we'll pass them on to our children so they'll understand God knows what he's doing. What about in our day? God knows what he's doing. I know that because I know he knew what he was doing before. I saw what I see on the pages of Scripture what he did in the lives of my father and his father and his father. And it is my challenge to pass those things to my son, to my children, to my granddaughter and grandson that they will be able to stand in the hope of the Lord in their day. So God, I pray you would make us faithful men and women to meet the challenge you have laid upon us wherever we go, whatever we do, when we rise up, when we lie down, May we teach the things that the Lord has taught us to the little ones around us. May we have the heart of Christ that says, Suffer not the little children and let them come unto me. May they grow, may they learn, and may we raise up a generation ready to stand. And we'll give you All the praise, for it is through you and by you and for you we can do anything. May you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.